Okay, well, good evening, everyone. This is, uh, I have the, uh, privilege, but also, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, the privilege of, um, doing the last, uh, WebEx meeting. Um, you know, as much, as much as it's been hard for us not to meet together, um, I really thank God that he's given to us uh, this sort of medium in order for us to at least see one another, um, hear God's word. Uh, and much of that's been said in the mornings uh, has been for, for not only myself, but uh, for, for you all as well. And let me tell you and remind you all that um, when we do meet next Sunday, uh, morning and evening. Remember those things that Pastor Antonio has been uh, teaching us concerning the means of grace, uh, concerning the special privilege that we have when we meet together, uh, that God is with us uh, in a unique and uh, mysterious, of course, um, but glorious way. So uh, don't forget those things. Um, and if you have to, which I'm going to, uh, re-listen to all of those lessons and sort of build an anticipation up. And also, let me lastly say, don't let that, uh, don't let that, that view of the Lord's Supper, of prayer, of the preached word, of baptism, um, don't let that, uh, uh, die down or, um, don't let that fire be, burnt out um, but keep reminding yourselves of uh, the great privileges that we have when we meet together uh, and never lose it uh, let's pray and then we will begin our lesson holy God we ask that you forgive us of our sins that you help us as we um, consider once again you know, what is your word uh, help us learn many things may your spirit be with those who are listening, and that, and that person who is speaking. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so, if uh, if you remember, uh, last Lord's Day lesson, uh, we were in question three, which what, it, I, I was um, very excited, actually, to speak on question three, because uh, some of the stuff that was in question three was... Uh, Things that I didn't think I was going to touch on or speak about for another year or so. Um, so that was exciting for me. But we read in question three, uh, how may we know that there is a God? This is last week's question, by the way. So how may we know that there is a God? So the question is asking, how can man come to an understanding and a knowledge of God? And then the answer is the light of nature and man and the works of God plainly declare that there is a God. Now, let's stop there. If you remember last week, we spoke of uh, natural theology. And that natural theology is what every person has within them, whether they be, um, a, whether that be, that they be saved in Christ or not saved in Christ. Everyone has a natural theology. Uh, there is a light of nature that every man has that has not been destroyed uh, because of Adam's fall, but there are, as you know, Francis Turchin will say, that there's rays of light uh, which man has, um, and their reason has not been obliviated uh, because of the fall. So when we think of natural theology, mainly what it is is man can come to a knowledge of God by observing the created order, that man can look at nature and um, without presupposing Christianity, without ever reading the Bible, without ever hearing anything about uh, God and who he is, uh, man can come to conclusions based off the use of right reason that there is a God. So it is, it is speech about God um, that man can come to by nature, by observing the created order. Um, many of you already know this. Uh, many of you, I'm sure, uh, one of your arguments for the existence of God to people whom you talk to is, well, look around you. Who else created this? Uh, is this not, it can't be by chance. It can't be by uh, evolution. Um, it can't be by just a period of, of nothing and then something came about. Uh, but someone 
put all of this in motion, and that someone is God. Then we moved on to, uh, or actually the, the question three says, um, answer, but his word and spirit only do it fully and effectually for the salvation of sinners. So we see that natural theology is enough to um, bring to man a knowledge of God, but natural theology doesn't save man. So we can't, by observing the creation, see that God is triune. We can't, by nature, uh, understand that we are dead in trespasses and sins and that we need a savior. Creation itself can't teach us anything about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what creation can teach us is that God is one. And this is where we need what is called supernatural theology. And supernatural theology is that speech about God uh, that God implants in the person, in the believer, in order that they may be awakened to the spiritual things of God. Um, The natural man cannot understand the things of God, we read in the Word, And what we need is a divine and supernatural light. We need assistance and we need grace in order for us to see who God truly is and how he's revealed himself in his word. Right. So natural theology is the speech about God. Um, It is knowing who God is by uh, reason, by creation. And supernatural theology is the speech about God. Uh, the things we can know about God by by a divine and supernatural light uh, uh, infused into us, uh, where we have grace, where we are given, uh, you know, with a blinder to taken off our eyes, that we may see uh, all the beauty of God uh, without the veil. Um, we know that God is triune and all that. So, as we move on to question four, question four really builds upon question three. Because if you remember in question three, in the answer, it says um, in the last half of the answer, but his word and spirit only do it fully and effectually for the salvation of sinners. So only the word of God can teach us what sinners are to do in order for them to be saved. Okay, if you remember, creation can't teach us how to be saved, but the word of God can teach us how to be saved. And as we move on to question four. It's now building upon, now, okay, now what is the Word of God then? Since the Word of God and, of course, the Spirit who uh, illumines and enlightens and takes the blinders off your eyes in order for you to see light, since the Holy Spirit um, allows you to read the Word, to love the Word, to understand the supernatural things in the Word, what is the Word of God? That is our question this evening. Question four, what is the word of God? Answer, the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the word of God and the only certain rule of faith and obedience. Um, This evening, we want to uh, consider a very important doctrine, a very important teaching of the church, uh, which is called the inspiration of Scripture. And I get that from the answer where it says the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the Word of God. Both Old and New Testaments are the Word of God. And simply what I'm answering this evening is, what does it mean for the Old and New Testament to be the Word of God? And then I'll do um, look a little bit into how it is the only certain rule of faith and obedience, but I want to save um, the last half of this answer for next week when we meet together because there's a lot of uh, there's a lot that I would want to say concerning it's the word of God being the only certain rule of faith and obedience. So uh, just two points this evening. Uh, number one, scripture as inspired by God. And number two, scripture as the only certain rule of faith and practice or obedience. So number one. Scripture as inspired by God. And number two, scripture as our only certain rule of faith and practice. Let's look at the first point, which is scripture as inspired by God. Scripture as inspired by God. Amongst the many doctrines that are attacked in our day today, there's many things that are attacked, right? Uh, The incarnation, whether God really became man, 
the resurrection, whether Jesus Christ really rose from the dead, even considering whether Jesus Christ was even, is there any historical record whether Christ actually lived or not, right? Um, Whether Adam was a real person or not. Among these many doctrines that are attacked, the inspiration of Scripture is constantly a target. It's constantly a target for atheists, for skeptics, for critics. Uh, and many, when they object to Christianity, um, the reason why they object to Christianity is because of their view of the Bible. That's probably one of the first things you'll hear from a critic or a skeptic or someone who just doesn't want to believe. They just they reject the Bible. And one of their objections is, of course, the inspiration of the scripture. Simply put, people who oppose Christianity and who oppose the Bible don't believe that the Bible is the actual and literal words of God. And saying the inspiration of scripture is an extremely important doctrine because everything we say about the Christian faith hinges upon how we view the Bible. Right? Um, Lorraine Botner speaks of this quote, and this is actually a man, not a woman, uh, but speaks of this uh, when, when he says this. The answer that we are, we are to give to the question, what is Christianity, depends quite largely on the view we take of Scripture. If we believe that the Bible is the very word of God and infallible, which means un, incapable of making an error, we will develop one conception of Christianity if we believe that is a only a collection of human writings, perhaps considerably above the average in its spiritual and normal or moral teachings, but nevertheless containing many errors, we will develop a radically different conception of Christianity. So if you believe that the Bible, although it has some spiritual elements to it and some things are true, there are some errors as well. Um, if indeed uh, what, what, we, what we then have can legitimately be called Christianity, hence we can hardly overestimate the importance of a correct doctrine concerning the inspiration of scriptures. So, a lot hinges upon our view of inspiration um, and our view of the Bible. And really the question that we're asking or trying to answer this evening is, has God really spoke to us? Has God really communicated to us through his word? Through normal men? So what is the what do we mean when we say the inspiration of scripture? What do we mean when we say the inspiration of scripture? Well, first, of course, as you know me, I'm sure by now, uh, and the way that I speak, uh, let's answer what it doesn't mean. What do we don't mean when we say the inspiration of scripture? When we say that the scriptures are inspired by God, we don't mean motivate. We don't mean motivate. Um, like if someone was inspired to write a book, when someone is inspired to write a book, usually they're motivated to write a book. We're not saying that God motivated men to write Holy Scripture. When we say the Scriptures are inspired by God, we don't mean to encourage. Like if someone was singing and, you know, the lyrics of the song are really beautiful, and uh, they, they might be encouraging you to do something, to either get up and, and start doing something. Um, we're not saying that God encouraged men to pin Holy Scripture. So what do we mean by inspiration of Scripture? Well, simply put, uh, the inspiration of Scripture says that when men wrote the Bible, when men wrote the Bible, what they were writing were the literal and actual words of God. Again, when men wrote the Bible, what they were writing were the literal and actual words of God. Now, a question immediately arises. How do we reconcile this, that what the men were writing were the uh, literal and actual words of God? How do we reconcile this? with the human intention of Scripture, you know, such as or the, the authors of Scripture, such as Peter and Moses and David and, and, all, the, and all the guys that wrote the Bible. In other words, when St. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, we know as the, the letter written to the Ephesians, 
are those words that he was writing, are they the words of Paul? Are they all the words of God? Or is there room for a mixture of both? Did Paul, um, was he allowed to put his own thoughts into the letter? And that is, of course, a big dilemma, is it not? Um, and I believe the inspiration of Scripture helps us answer this apparent dilemma. When we think about the Word of God, is it merely just the words of men? Is it a mixture of both God and man's thoughts? Um, or is it strictly just God's thoughts? I would say that when men wrote the Scriptures, and hear me now, saints, when men wrote the Scriptures, their statements or words did not originate in their own thinking. Their statements and words did not originate in their own thinking, but rather they were put into their minds by direct action of the Holy Spirit. So the words that Paul, Peter, David, Moses were writing, it didn't originate in their own mind, but it was put there by direct action via the Holy Spirit. The men who wrote the Word of God, they wrote the Word of God in the sense that the words came directly from God. The words that they were writing came directly from God again. It wasn't as if Paul or Peter or Moses or David sat down one day and decided to write their own theology or decided to pin Holy Scripture but rather the Holy Spirit moved them in such a way to where what they penned were the very words of God. And even if they did sit down to write, it was the Holy Spirit that was guiding them. And all of their words did not come from their own faculties, but rather it came from God. God was speaking through them. We can say that God carried these men to write Holy Scriptures. God carried, he moved these men along to write Scriptures. And one analogy that the older Reformed theologians would use is uh, leaves in a fall time. If you remember uh, in the fall, if you see leaves on the ground, uh, maybe in on the road, uh, and Let's say that those leaves are moving along the road, right? Um, we wouldn't say that, oh, look, those leaves are moving. Those leaves have the power in and of themselves to move. The leaves, they themselves are carrying themselves along. But rather, what's carrying, what's moving the leaves? The wind. The wind is what's carrying the leaves, moving the leaves. And the same can apply to the Holy Scriptures. It's not the men who are writing, although they are the instruments that God is using to write. Ultimately, God is writing. Now, this doesn't mean that the authors of Scripture went into a trance as the Holy Spirit moved them to write the words of God. It wasn't as if Paul, when he was writing Romans, or when he was writing the letters to the Ephesian Christians, that, you know, his eyes turned white, or his eyes are rolling in the back of his head, and he was shaking, and he was just writing, and he wasn't aware of what was going on. That's not how uh, the Holy Spirit moved and carried men to write his word. Yeah, I believe the authors of Scripture were, were aware of what they were doing to a certain extent. But, of course, we have to say, and I would argue, and Pastor Antonio has argued this before better than better than I have, um, that the writers of Scripture didn't fully understand much of what they were saying. Um, and we, we read of this uh, numerous times in the words, especially uh, maybe in like Romans 11, uh, where... Paul is just pouring this deep theology of election and um, and speaking of this great olive tree. And, and, the, uh, and then at the end, he says, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom of God. 
you know, um, he, 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 he comes to realize, man, what, what is this? And I believe in, even when, when Paul says, oh, the depths, um, I believe that it is the Holy Spirit, too, who was speaking uh, in that manner. Also, we are to think that when God inspired men to write, uh, it wasn't a mix of their own thoughts and God's thoughts. When God inspired men to write, it wasn't a mix of their own thoughts and God's thoughts. Um, it wasn't a little bit of Paul and a little bit of God. It wasn't a little bit of David and what he wanted to say and God and what he wanted to say. Um, I believe that it was, and I, the history of the church believes, and I think the word of God clearly says and testifies to the fact that the word of God, all that is written, is by God himself. And lastly, uh, God did not inspire men. This is also what men might believe when we say inspiration of scripture is um, God inspired men and then left men to interpret or summarize what God had said. This is in Pastor Antonio spoke this morning about many false teachers and how they try to manipulate people um, when in prayer um, where you can you can manipulate God uh, by by saying in Jesus name. And that sort of gives this like, you know, supernatural, um, you know, magic wand where you will get what you receive. Um, this is also something that we see in the church today that many false teachers like to bring out is that God inspired me or he said something to me and now it's up to me to interpret what I'm saying. And uh, all, that is false, but also believing that the inspiration of scripture and the way that God inspired men and the Holy Spirit moved men to write is by him inspiring men and then leaving them into leaving them their own interpretation, leaving them to um, best summarize what he said. And that's not how we are to think of the inspiration of Scripture. Rather, God moved the very lips. He moved the very pen of the authors of Scripture. That doesn't mean that they were in a trance. It doesn't mean that they weren't aware um, of, of what they were doing, um, to a certain extent, at least. Uh, but it does mean that uh, all of the all of what they were writing uh, did not come from their own minds, but rather came from the mind of God. So when we read one of Paul's letters or Peter's or David's poems, uh, we aren't to think that what we are reading are uh, Paul's words or David's words or Peter's words, but they are the very words of holy God. Now, this doesn't mean that in the Psalms, that when David's lamenting over his sin, that he's not really sorrowful. Or when Paul wrote in Romans 9-2, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. That when Paul said that, that he wasn't really expressing grief. If we say that it was the Holy Spirit or it was God who was speaking through them. Friends, I believe that when Paul wrote that in Romans 9, 2, that he was certainly expressing his own feelings. That he was genuinely concerned over his, 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 uh, his folk, his kinfolk. He was genuinely concerned over the people of Israel. Yet, his desire to express that sorrow, and the words in, with which he expressed it, and perhaps even the sorrow itself, were put there into his heart by the Holy Spirit. So in summary, what is the inspiration of Scripture? The inspiration of Scripture is the doctrine that says the Holy Scriptures were penned by men who were used by God. Holy Scriptures did not and cannot, and that's huge for us to understand, is the Word of God cannot originate in the mind of men. If we want to believe that the Word of God is without error, because all men make errors. Rather, God moved men to pen the very words, or his words. John Owen 
summarizes this well. He says, the laws they made known, the doctrines they delivered, the instructions they gave, the stories they recorded, the promises of Christ, the promises of gospel times they gave out and revealed, were not their own, not conceived in their minds, not formed by their reasonings, not retained in their memories from what they heard, not by any means beforehand comprehended by them, but were all of them immediately from God, there being only a passive concurrence of their rational faculties in their reception. And that last part is Owen really saying that these men were not just machines for God, but they they wrote. Um, however, what they were writing was not their own. It was from God. And this is what our catechism means when it says the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the word of God. And this is this specifically speaks to a lot of what's wrong in uh, the church today, where they believe that only the New Testament is the word of God. Um, I only want to read and believe what the New Testament says. But here our catechism says, which I believe the catechism is really summarizing what the Bible says, is both Old and New Testament are the word of God. Both Old Testament and New Testament were inspired by God. So let's consider, where do we see the inspiration of Scripture in Scripture? Where, where does the Bible teach this, right? Um, Mark thirteen eleven, Jesus says to his disciples, And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, hear this, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Here we see, the Thessalonian Christians received the message of God through the lips of Paul. It was Paul who delivered the message. But when they heard the words of Paul, they received the words of Paul, not as the words of Paul, but as the word of God. Second Peter one twenty one says, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Here, Peter explicitly denies that the scriptures were written by any act of human will. That there was no prophecy that the prophets of old dreamt up. But rather, the motivation to write scripture, the motivation for prophecy, came directly from the Holy Spirit. William Perkins comments on this verse, quote, The scripture is the word of God, written in a language fit for the church by men immediately called to be the clerks or secretaries of the Holy Ghost. And this sort of language as the men being men who wrote the scriptures, uh, being the clerks or secretaries of God, um, is quite common in much of the older reform literature concerning the inspiration of Scripture. And it's, it's a very fitting title to call the men of Scripture, who wrote Scripture, right? That they are the secretaries of God, who were merely just uh, penning what uh, their boss, God, was saying. We read in Acts 28-25, And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah, the prophet to your fathers. Again, really just piggybacking off of uh, what Peter says, is that no prophet uh, prophesied by the act of his own will. It did not come from his mind. And here, Isaiah, um, we see that was under the supernatural inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he prophesied. 
The prophecies of Isaiah did not originate in the mind of Isaiah, but rather came from the mind of God. Uh, Hugh Cartwright captures this well. He says, quote, had good men been left, and this is a really good quote, by the way, had good men been left to themselves to communicate the revelation God gave them, we would have a human fallible, which means a, a document that's capable of error, account, and could not be sure of divine truth of what was written. But God gave them not merely the thoughts, but also the words, which convey these God-given thoughts in the best possible way, so that when we read their words, we are reading the very words of God. They are they were the mouth through which God spoke his words. Again, this is really saying what I've been saying up to this point, right, is that when we read Holy Scripture, we are reading Holy Scripture. When we read the Word of God, that's not just a saying that the church has been saying forever, but rather it means what we're actually saying. We mean what we actually are saying, that they are the words of God. And saints, because of the Word of God are the very words of God, the implication of this is found in the last half of our catechism answer. It says, quote, the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the Word of God and the only certain rule of faith and obedience. Now, as I said, next Lord's Day, we'll go more in depth in what it means for the Holy Scriptures to be the only certain rule of faith and obedience. But the argument is this. Since the Bible is the Word of God, therefore the Bible are the very and actual and literal words of God, then the Bible alone is the only certain rule of faith and obedience. Did you catch the argument since the Bible is the word of God, and we mean what we say, it is the word of God, then the Bible alone is the only certain rule of faith and practice. <clears throat> now, what does it mean to say that the Bible is the only certain rule of faith and obedience? Well, simply put, it means that the Bible is our final authority when it comes to the Christian faith. When it comes to everything concerning Christianity, and we can even extend that to how we are to operate in this world, because I believe that the Bible teaches ethics, uh, it teaches us anthropology, the study of man, the nature of man. It teaches us about many things concerning the government uh, and concerning how we are to um, uh, look at different areas in the world. Because we are to have a Christian worldview, that we are to look at the Bible and the Bible alone for answers to various questions, such as how we are to respond to the civil magistrate or the government, how we are to handle homosexuality, how we are to think about various leaders and who we put in power. <clears throat> so, God's word is our sole, our final authority. In matters of faith and practice. Second Timothy 3.16 speaks of this well. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Two things to notice here. First, we see that the Holy Scripture is breathed out by God through his spokesman. And secondly, because the Holy Scriptures are breathed out by God, then the Bible has the final say in all matters concerning the Christian faith. Our confession in chapter 1, paragraph 6, brings us out perfectly. Quote, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scriptures, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. We live in a day and age when Christians are craving for new revelation from God. There are many preachers who want to say that God continues to speak to them audibly and they continue to, and they interpret what God tells them, especially during this time um, where many people are saying that God is speaking to me about the times right now um, that we are living in the end. Well, 
no doubt. We've been living we've been living in the last days since Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father. So that's nothing new. Um, but we'll go more in depth in this next Lord's Day, as I said. But let me say this: to people who say that God still speaks audibly, um, and that you know, I I'm these to these people who are craving new revelations from God. <clears throat> Since God has already spoken to us in his word, there is no further knowledge that we need concerning man, concerning God, concerning redemption, concerning governments, concerning ethics, concerning uh, anything. That we don't need anything else. That God used the prophets and the apostles, and now he speaks to us in his son or through his son. We don't need any other extra added revelation from God. Because if we did so, then what that would mean, two things, is that uh, we need to rewrite the Bible because all that's what God is saying to these men, um, we need to canonize, we need to put in the Bible because God is still speaking. But also it says that God's word is not sufficient. That what we have now, our Bibles, that it's not enough. Right. And I would also add, if God is still speaking, then how can we say that the Mormons are wrong when God spoke to Joseph Smith? Maybe the seventh day of Venice when God spoke to Ellen G. White or maybe even the Muslims when God apparently spoke to Muhammad. So if we still allow God to speak. Then it's fair game for all the other religions. And lastly, notice our confession goes against any traditions of men. Um, I can't wait to get into this when we talk of next week, when we talk about, uh, and I'll go more in depth in this uh, and speak to especially the errors of Rome, the Roman Catholic Church. But when it says that, um, that uh, whether by new revelation of the spirit or traditions of man are not to be added, Simply put, um, although although many people in the church throughout church history have helped us understand better doctrines, understand better the word of God. And I believe the Reformed tradition, um, they have the best synthesizers of of what the Bible says. And you can even add some of the medieval theologians, definitely, and some of the church fathers, um, if not all the church fathers. Um, but. All the church fathers, Augustine, um, all the medieval theologians, Aquinas, uh, even our reformed heritage, uh, Calvin, Owen, Turretin, Bobbing, all these guys, even the guys that you hear me quote often, <laughs> um, those men uh, are not who we are to give our final authority to. And we have to judge what these men say based upon the word of God. So if John Calvin is saying something that is incorrect, that does not line up with the word of God, then Calvin's wrong. But if Calvin does say something that lines up with the word of God, then what Calvin did was he he brought more to light what the word of God says. And if he's saying something true about the word of God, then that's right. Oftentimes it's said that those Christians, Reformed Christians, who hold to a um, confession of faith, as we do, the 1689, they say that we put the confession of faith above Scripture. But friends, that's contrary to even what the, what the confession of faith says in its own chapter in chapter 1. It brings out that the confession comes underneath Scripture. This confession is a tradition of men, no doubt. Men wrote this, and we have carried this document until now. And we believe that the 1689 Confession of Faith best expresses and best summarizes what the Bible says. But under no circumstances do we, the elders, nor any other good, reformed, confessional Christian, say that this confession goes above and beyond what the Bible says. The Bible always has the final rule of authority. And 
this is where we differ from Rome, is it not? Where, yes, we have a tradition, and we love our Reformed tradition that I believe goes back to the medieval period, and it goes all the way back to the church fathers, through the church fathers, to the uh, apostolic age, to Christ, to all the way down to Moses. I believe that our tradition, our Reformed tradition, goes, there's a straight line from us all the way to Moses and the biblical authors. But where we differ from Rome is we don't allow our tradition to be on par with the Bible. But we say the Bible is always before, far and above what our confession says, what our tradition says. Rather, Rome would want to say, the Roman Catholic Church wants to say, that their tradition, what the Pope says, there are various councils that they've had, Vatican I, Vatican II, Trent, all these other ones, that those are on par with the Bible. And we must consider what the Bible says and what our tradition says. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that. We have to consider what our Bible says and how our tradition has summarized what the Bible has said. But where we differ is, if our tradition is wrong, then they're wrong. Where Rome says is, no matter what our tradition says, they're right. We're going to speak more about that next week. Um, and some of the things that Rome has said concerning some of the doctrines that they hold to. But in summary, when we say that the Bible is the only certain rule of faith and practice, that we look to the Bible alone for how we are to be as Christians. When we consider how man is to be saved, look to the word of God. When we are to consider how we are to live as Christians, look to the word of God. doesn't mean that we can't read other books. We can't read other material. I mean, I have a room full of books. Not literally a room full of books, but but um, we have to understand that what we read um, always comes underneath, and it is aided or it supplements to the Word of God. The Word of God always comes first. I remember there was a, and I always tell uh, young men this when they say, "Okay, who should I read first? Should I read should I read uh, John Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion first? Should I read uh, Francis Turretin's Institutes of Atlantic Theology first? Should I just go into Aquinas's Summa first? Should I read Augustine through Cappadocia? Who should I read first? Right? And I always say, Have you read Paul first? Have you read John first? Have you read Moses first?" You see, it's, we need to be first and foremost biblical Christians before we are systematic theologians, before we are biblical theologians. Uh, we are to be, and I mean biblical theologians, those who are in that field of biblical theology, but we are to be ones who know the word. And one of the Great applications of this is what we heard this morning, is it not? Where when Pastor Antonio talked about reading the word helps us in our prayer. And saints, I would, I would agree that the more word we know, uh, I think the, the far better our prayer life will be. Um, and we are to keep that at the forefront of our minds. So uh, what is the inspiration of scripture? Well, simply put, it is that when God, when men wrote Holy Scripture, what they were writing were the words of God. Simply put, uh, there wasn't a <clears throat> there wasn't a, a mixture of man's thoughts and God's thoughts, but men were the secretaries that God used to pen His holy, inspired, infallible Word. In closing. Uh, in the study guide I sent you, and I hope that you all got it, um, but in the study guide I sent you, you'll, you'll see that the last question that I um, gave to you is, how does the inspiration of Scripture boost our confidence in God's Word and aid in our evangelism? This is always what we want to know, right, is, okay, 
how does this rich theology help me in my everyday living? Well, let me ask, let me answer first. When we consider the inspiration of scripture and um, how it aids in our evangelism, um, what the common what the common argument and objection to the Bible, thereby the common objection to Christianity would be from atheist skeptics critics is, well, I don't believe the Bible because the Bible was written by men. And men make errors, and I don't believe it. And what you can tell them is, well, that's great because I don't believe the Bible was written by men either. I believe that the Bible is written by God. And if the Bible is written by God, then it must be true. Now, we can go into uh, you know, textual criticism and uh, and uh, how the Bible you know has been uh, transmitted and, and all that. But uh, that's one way to quickly shut down an atheist or a skeptic who says, well, I don't believe the Bible because the Bible is written by men. We don't believe the Bible is written by men either. Although we believe that the Bible or the men were the instruments that God used, ultimately, the Bible, the words of God, are the very words of God. So it does help us in our evangelism, but also understanding that what we are what we are saying um what we are saying to these people, uh, they're, they're, they're not merely fairy tales or made-up stories. But what we preach to you are the very words of God. And you are to listen to them. Similar to uh, uh, when, we, when we preach the word. You've, we've heard in um, Pastor Antonio's lesson, uh, preaching as the means of grace. Where when one preaches the word of God, and if they are preaching accurately and faithfully, uh, then it is God himself who is preaching. And when we consider how the word of God boosts our confidence in God's word, we can trust that what we are reading are not merely 66 books that have been uh, thought by the minds of men. But what we read are the very words of Almighty God. We can trust the Bible. But the Bible is not to be our cup holders. The Bible is not to be those things that we use to, to prop up things. But the Bible are the very literal words of Almighty God. So let's read our Bibles. Let's love our Bibles. Think about all the books that are on the New York Times bestseller. And saints, men go out of their ways to to listen to uh, a speech given by a mere man who is our president. We want to know what Governor Gavin is saying. There's thousands, if not millions of people that listen, you know, to those live streams that Galvin is that Galvin is talking about. But what about what God says in His Word? Do we flock and run to our Bibles just so we can hear what God has said to us? And in extension to that, do we anticipate every single Lord's Day when God speaks to us once again through His servants? Those are some things to consider when we when we think about our word and when we consider uh, the great doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture that God has indeed spoken to us, and as we read in Hebrews that in these last days He's spoken to us in His Son, that the Word of God are sixty-six wonderful books written by various men, but the greatness of the Word of God is that there's only one message. And that one message centers around that promised seed in Genesis 3.15, who will come and live, die, rise, ascend, and come back again for his people. So praise God that he has spoken to us and that he has given us that divine and supernatural light to 
love his word, to read his word. Uh, and we know that it is word that will allow us to keep enduring until Christ returns. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for speaking to us. You spoke to us through various individuals, and now you speak to us through your Son. We thank you and we love you. We thank you, Jesus Christ, for loving us in such a way that you have lived, died, and rose for us. We thank you for giving to us your Spirit that we now read your Bible and love it as before we would read it and not understand it. And of course, sometimes we don't understand it, but we know that your spirit is helping us to illuminate and allow us to put in the work to understand what you have said to these men. Help us, Lord. Thank you for giving us your word to strengthen us. It is our very rock. It is that foundation in which we are to build our houses upon. So allow us to build many homes upon this rock. Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> um, let me read a benediction, a blessing to you all, um, which will be the very last one <laughs> that I read uh, through uh, Cisco WebEx. Um, also, we want to thank, uh, through all this, let me, let, let me thank uh, Brother Scott, um, who's been very, very helpful. and. Uh, you know, always on cue when you know, there's a noise or, or, or something goes off, um, he mutes them or uh, all that. Um, or he unmutes people. So, Brother Scott, we we so we really thank you for for helping us and uh, and finding uh, Cisco WebEx for us, uh, where the other one Zoom well, we could have come up with some problems uh, and complications. But uh, we thank you, brother, for um, helping us and, and bringing this to us. Lord knows that me and Antonio. Um, we probably would have been writing letters <laughs> to one another or emails or something. So, uh, thank you, Scott. Um, let me read from, um, uh, Peter's first letter. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a simple blessing, but, uh, a very powerful one, I think. Um, Peter says, peace to you all who are in Christ. And I pray that God has been giving you peace throughout this entire time. And when we meet together, um, I anticipate that uh, it's going to be very much like the first time when we are all given our <laughs> physical bodies and we get to meet once more in uh, the eternal state. So um, may God's blessing and grace and peace be with you all. I'm here. If you have any questions, 